You know, I'm really upset and disrespected by what Lou Holtz said publicly about our team in Ohio State and Buckeye Nation. And we're not going to stand for that. That's not even close to true. We had one bad half a couple years ago up in Ann Arbor. We did the second half. But we, we, every game we play in, we're physical. We are. I don't know where that narrative comes from. Tell them, Ryan Day. You've come under so much criticism. People have been giving you a hard time, saying that you can't win games in the trenches. It has to go a certain way for you to be victorious. Man, Flex, I'm great with it. I really am. I couldn't tell you how proud I was of the performance that I saw from Ohio State and finding a way to win in what was a crazy hostile environment in a way that maybe a year ago, two years ago, maybe they don't win that way. They found a way, though, on Saturday. Welcome to Always College Football. I'm Greg McElroy, your host. Thanks so much for being with us, man. We really appreciate all the support that you've shown the show up to this point. Please continue to like by hitting that thumbs up button, rate the podcast wherever you get your podcast, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcast. Well, it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, you name it. We really appreciate it. As we do every single Monday, we're going to go through and do the 10 things that we learned. I learned that defenses might actually win championships this year. I learned that young coaches occasionally make mistakes, but you should not write them off. I learned that coaches have a bravado right now and listen to everything that's said about their program. I also learned that the SEC West is a three-horse race, and every single one of those three teams is trying to figure themselves out at the moment. I learned that the ACC consistently been a doormat, not the case this year. And I learned that the group of five, G5, if you will, the non-autonomous five, there might be a different conference on top so far. Let's not waste any additional time. We always start Mondays with our top 10, little AP poll reaction, but I'll give you my top 10. And I think there's a nugget in here that's probably going to surprise you. Monday edition, as always, we dive in to the AP poll just a little bit and tell you how I would tweak things just a little bit. Okay. But a couple takeaways that you might want to take into account when evaluating this week's poll. Washington's up to number seven. That's the highest ranking for them since 2018. I ask you this, though. Seriously, if Ohio State wore, you know, garnet and gold or crimson and cream or crimson and white or scarlet and gray, would their ranking not reflect that. Tell me that team's the seventh best team in the country based on what you've seen so far. I'll leave it at that. More on that in just a moment. Uh, Duke is up to number 17. That is their highest ranking since 1994. And they will play an AP ranked matchup for just the third time since 95. It's the last two times they've played in a ranked matchup. Uh, was in 2013, they lost both. Uh, they have not won an AP ranked matchup since 1994 against Virginia. That was... Gosh, almost 30 years ago. And that win by Duke against number 13, Virginia at the time, is their only AP-ranked matchup victory in their last 50 years. So a big one coming up this week, obviously, against Notre Dame. Kansas ranked at least once in the AP poll for consecutive seasons for the first time since three straight from 2007 to 2009. And 17 of the 21 undefeated Power 5 teams are in this week's AP poll, the three that aren't, the four that aren't, excuse me, Kentucky, which received 41 votes, Louisville 32, Maryland 20, and Syracuse 8. So that's kind of where things stand as of right now. Here's the way I would have them, okay? I would have Washington at number one. Just saying. Of all the teams in college football that I really don't want to play, Washington might be at the top of the list. Now, can they win a game in the trenches? Can they ground and pound? If the offense isn't firing the way it's fired in the first four weeks, can they still find a way to victory? I'm not so sure. I don't know that just yet. But I know I've watched Cal a couple times, and I know while Cal is not going to necessarily move the needle, they're better than you probably think. But for Washington to make mincemeat of them, was pretty dang ridiculous. 59 points in a conference game. It's the most that they've scored since 2016. They've scored 40 points in each of their first four games, just the second time in school history. The other time they did that was in 1944, so it's been a minute. 45 points in the first half of that football game was the most in a half in Washington history. They've done it five times previously. 
And then 199 points a season. It's the most through four games since scoring 199 through four games in 1971. This team is a juggernaut. Michael Penix took the field with a 14-point lead. The first time he stepped on the field, they had already built up a two-touchdown lead over the Cal Bears. Washington, I think, is playing as well as anybody. And I is there brand bias involved in the AP poll? Perhaps. But I'm telling you, man, there are not many teams in college football that are playing better than the Huskies right now. At number two, I'd have Georgia. Um, I mean, it's UAB. Can we take a lot from that game? I, I don't know. UAB scored 21. I thought that was pretty good, I guess. But Georgia, a little bit of a slow start at times this year. Still think if they play their best, they beat everybody. But that's something worth noting. At number three, I have Ohio State. Ohio State played a game against Notre Dame that was really the way Notre Dame wanted it to be. They limited possessions. Ohio State had eight possessions. Notre Dame had seven. There just weren't that many opportunities to score. And what I was most impressed with, perhaps, was at the end of the game, finding the way to steal that one on the road. They showcased mental toughness. We'll talk about all that here in just a minute. But I would have Ohio State at number three after what was, I think, a massive victory for Ryan Day and company. At number four, I have the Texas Longhorns. Continue to look really impressive. They'll get a test this week against a ranked Kansas team. I want to see how their defense operates. It's a really good Kansas offense. I think it'll be a nice test for the Longhorns there in Austin, Florida State. I'd have it number five. Florida State has dropped a couple of spots the last couple of weeks. Last week against Clemson, were they the better team? I don't know. I really don't know. Called the game. I have a ton of respect for, Notre Dame, uh, for Florida State. Defense made an opportunistic play. But the offense still, for whatever reason, it's just a little bit stop and start. Man, there's moments they look great. And there's moments where it's like, man, what the heck is going on? So a little bit inconsistent Florida State has been up to this point. I'd love to see them put 60 minutes together. I'm not sure we've seen it up to this point, but we've seen it in bunches like the second half against LSU, where if they play like that, they can play with and beat just about anyone they play. At number six, I have Penn State up to number six. Very impressed with what they're doing defensively. I'll talk about that here again in just a minute. Number seven, I have Michigan dropping for me. You know I've loved Michigan for a long time. I've loved Michigan for a long time, dating all the way back to last year. But for whatever reason, there's just some inconsistencies right now with Michigan that have just me a little bit apprehensive about putting them up there at or near the top of the rankings. At number eight, I have Oregon up quite a bit from where I've had them in the past. I was really impressed with what they did defensively, more so than what I saw from them offensively. But we'll talk about them in a minute. Utah's at nine, continue to just play ridiculous on the defensive side of the football. And then at number 10, at number 10, how about the Washington State Cougars? How about it? Now, you're going to sit there and say, well, hang on. Come on. Hot take artist. Fine. If you want to get, you know, if you want to be all about the brands, I'm fine with that. I get it. Washington State has not necessarily always been a team that's at or near the top. But I look at what their quarterback's doing right now. Talk about him in a while. Think about how they played for the most part uh, throughout the course of the game. I mean, starting fast, pedal down against a group that's not really built to come from behind. Thoroughly impressed. It was one of the most impressive victories of the weekend, even though there was so much to clean up. I think Jake Dickert and company are doing an amazing job. So I actually have them in the top 10 right now. The AP polls definitely respecting the Cougs. I'd have them a little higher than where the AP has them right now. 10 things we learned. We do it every Monday. Always enjoy this practice. This is really a lot of fun for us. And we try to take, you know, big picture discussion a little bit. We get in the weeds some. It's kind of all over the place. We kind of give a state of the union, if you will, every Monday on what we saw this past weekend in college football. But the number one thing I learned this past weekend is with all the hype and comments surrounding Deion Sanders and the Colorado Buffaloes, we are reminded here that even in a seven-on-seven -seven era of college football, in a spread offense, spread you out, get playmakers in space, score points, even in an era in which maybe the line has been devalued just a little bit, great teams are still built from the inside out. I mean, I'm talking elite teams. Now, can you win a lot of games with an average offensive line? Absolutely. Can you be an exciting team to watch with an average offensive line? No doubt about it. I still love watching Colorado. 
I still think they're going to be fun to watch. I still think they're going to score a lot of points. I still think they're going to do a lot of really nice things this year. I still think Deion Sanders and company are way ahead of schedule from what the preseason expectation was. Still thoroughly impressed with Shador Sanders. Still thoroughly impressed with all those guys, what they've done to this point. But if you're going to win big, if you're going to win championships, if you're going to chase the playoff, if you want to win your conference, you better be good up front both along the offensive line and along the defensive line. I'm going to pull just a couple of stats for you, okay? I'm not going to get into the weeds of pressure rates and sacks given up and you know evaded tackles by the quarterback behind the line of scrimmage and all that stuff. That's, that's all well and good. I'm fine with that. But it's long been documented that Shador Sanders and company, they've given up a million pressures. I mean, a million pressures. They have 22 sacks this year. Uh, it's the most sacks taken in the the entire country, all right? And that's through the first four games. The most sacks taken by a Power 5 quarterback in the last 20 years. Uh, he's also been sacked seven times in a game twice this year. So it was really fun, I think, for us to kind of follow the Colorado narrative a little bit. But when you start to go against teams that have legitimate playoff competition and legitimate playoff roster, they're going to have a tough time competing. So as they move forward, they got to identify guys in the trenches that can play at a really high level. Okay, enough about Colorado. Let's talk just a little bit more about the big picture of what an offensive line and a defensive line can do for you in the sport. Let's go back through it. All right, the Joe Moore Award. Feel how you want to feel about the Joe Moore Award. Okay, if you're not familiar with the award, it goes to annually the top offensive line in the country. And I have a tremendous, tremendous amount of respect for the Joe Moore Award and their committee because every single guy on that committee played offensive line or coached offensive line at an insanely high level. And they take great pride in it. Cole Kublik is one of my best friends in the world. Have a ton of respect for him. He serves as a voting member of that committee. They have calls. They watch every offensive line in the country, every single one. And I'm talking from you know Kent State all the way to Georgia. Like they watch them all. I know that for a fact because Cole talks about Kent State offensive line or Central Michigan's offensive line or Boise's offensive line. Like they're watching them all, okay? Here are the winners of the Joe Moore Award dating back to 2017, okay? Best offensive line in the country as voted on by people that are experts in the field. 2022, Michigan. They made the playoff. 2021, Michigan, they made the playoff. Obviously, they won the Big Ten as well in both 2021 and 2022. In 2020, the Joe Moore Award winner, Alabama, they won the national championship. 2019, the Joe Moore Award winner, LSU, they won the national championship. 2018, Oklahoma won the Joe Moore Award. They made the playoff. 2017, Notre Dame made the playoff. All right, we're talking about teams that consistently, or Notre Dame did not make the playoff in 17, but we're really close to making the playoff. Long story short, if you win the Joe Moore Award with the best offensive line in the country, the likelihood, at least dating all the way back to 2018, you're making the playoff at worst. And then if you want to go back to 17, 16, 15, what have you, you're going to be within striking distance of the playoff. So the Joe Moore Award is an indicator. A great offensive line is an indicator of your team's future success and the ceiling of your team in general. Let's talk about the Outland Trophy, which traditionally goes to the best interior lineman. Basically, it's the Heisman for big guys, okay? 2022, Olu Oluwatini, center, Michigan. Their team went to the playoff. Jordan Davis was the winner in 21. Defensive tackle, Georgia, national champions. 2020, Alex Leatherwood, Alabama, left tackle, national champions. 2019, Panay Sewell, Oregon, Rose Bowl champions. 2018, Quinn and Williams, Alabama, defensive tackle, national championship runner-up. Here's the anomaly in the group. Ed Oliver won it in 2017. He, of course, played for Houston. They went 7-5. and five. That's the anomaly. 2016, Cam Robinson, Alabama, national championship runner-up. Then 2015, Joshua Garnett played for Stanford. They won the Rose Bowl. So you look about it. If, if you have the best interior lineman and or the best collection of linemen, offensive line, Joe Moore Award, you're probably going to be pretty dang good. 
The game is still built, even though we've moved more towards quarterback, passing attack, great wide receivers, etc. The game, if you want to win big and be elite, you still have to be elite along the offensive and defensive lines. Takeaway number two. Marcus Freeman, as a head coach, is still a little bit of a work in progress. Now, be careful drawing conclusions about how good of a head coach he is. Because I think a lot of people are drawing conclusions. Well, Marcus Freeman lost that game. Marcus Freeman screwed it up. All this other stuff. Here were some of the questionable decisions that were made throughout the game that ultimately led to Ohio State pulling off what was a tremendous comeback. The screen on second and long that allowed Notre Dame to preserve or allowed Ohio State to preserve their final timeout. Now, this is a high percentage completion. Okay. Sam Hartman's a veteran quarterback. You're going to trust your veteran quarterback. He tries to get a screen. It's almost intercepted, by the way, by JT Tui Molao. It was a great play by him. But there, right there, you hand it off. You just had a nice run by Estime. Why wasn't Estime? This is a second bad decision. Why wasn't Estime in the game in the final few offensive plays? Uh, I, I love what, what Jeremiah Love is going to become. I think he's an amazing player, but you have a slow mesh mistake with about two minutes and 28 seconds left. If Estime's in there, man, the bowling ball, just get him going. That could, that's the type of back you want in the game when you're putting the game on ice. 230 pound downhill back that actually had played pretty well up to that point. I'm not 100% sure why he wasn't in the game. How about third and 19 from the 22? Why are your defensive backs dropping into the end zone? Okay, you're playing zone. I can live with that. Eyes are in the backfield. I can live with that. But you know that if you're snapping the ball offensively at the 22-yard line, your quarterback's at the 27. He's probably dropping to the 30 to be able to deliver the, th the ball. That means the ball, in order to be thrown over your head, has to travel 40 yards in the air just about. And you tell me the defensive backs can't run 10 yards in the time that a ball travels 40 yards? 100% they can. I would have had my defensive backs with my heels on the goal line they would not have given up one inch in retreat. I would have just planted. I would have called it. It's what we call a picket fence defense. Basically, all your defensive backs have their heels at the line to gain, and they don't back up at all. Because guess what? If it's thrown over their head, they can turn around and run 10 yards in the time the ball could travel that far. So I thought that was a big mistake by Al Golden and the defensive staff to kind of drop everybody back, give up soft coverage, and allow Egbuka to secure that catch there right uh, at the one yard line to convert on third and long. Then the final two snaps with 10 defenders on the field. Now, I understand that they, you know, had a substitution deal and they were in a nickel dime there on the third and long. And then they, they couldn't get another defensive lineman in the game or whatever the excuse may be. That just can't happen. They got away with it, by the way, on the first play because they tried to roll it right and they had an incompletion. You can't have it let happen twice in a row. You just can't. It, you have two plays to figure it out. I don't care if the extra defensive lineman that's on the sideline that's waiting to be substituted, have him just run in there and push the quarterback. Oh, well, a personal foul, unsportsmanlike conduct, personal foul, roughing the passer, whatever. Who, who cares? Like, you're going to give up 18 inches. So, all right, is it worth it to play defense with 10 guys or would you rather have the penalty with three seconds left that's going to give them 18 inches thought that was a huge mistake i know you didn't have a timeout i know in a perfect world you would have but take the penalty by all means and you say well how do i how do i tell the guys to take a penalty i don't know jd bertrand's the smartest linebacker in college football he probably knew that there were 10 guys on the field tell him to go tackle the center before he snaps it i don't whatever it is so thought that was a real big mistake as well but here's my biggest issue. Marcus Freeman is the head coach of Notre Dame. Notre Dame. His first head coaching job is at Notre Dame. It's a remarkably difficult spot to be thrust into. If he makes a mistake as the head coach of Georgia Southern, if he makes a mistake as the head coach of Utah State, if he makes a mistake as the head coach of Central Michigan, nobody's talking about it. Nobody. But because some of his mistakes are on national television with 10, 11, 12 million people watching, they're going to be highlighted and they're going to be blown up. Guess who also made mistakes early in his tenure because he took over as a first-time head coach at a big-time program? That'd be Kirby Smart. 
and a lot of the same conclusions are being made and and jumped to by people that follow the sport about Marcus Freeman the same way they were jumped to about Kirby Smart. Kirby Smart in 2021 was still having to defend the decision to start Stetson Bennett over JT Daniels, who's now on school four, by the way, at Rice. I mean, people didn't trust him to make the quarterback decision. I don't trust him, man. He botched the Jake from Justin Fields situation. He botched the Justin Fields, Jacob Eason situation. And now he's botching the Stetson Bennett, JT Daniels situation. Well, Kirby Smart was right and has now won two straight championships. And now people are saying, well, hang on a second. No, he, no, he's, he's the best. He's surpassed Saban. He's the goat. Don't jump to conclusions too early on coaches that are still trying to find themselves. And then if we want to go one step deeper, that was a personnel decision, all right? No one's criticizing Marcus Freeman for his personnel decisions. Talking about his in-game strategy and maybe some of the decisions that he made. Well, let's go back to an in-game decision that Kirby Smart made that he got destroyed for. How about in 2018, playing against Alabama with a lead in the SEC championship game, they call a fake punt on fourth and seven. Justin Fields is the personal protector. Alarm bells going off. The backup quarterback's in on punt. What the heck is that? Well, Bama recognized it. They stopped the fake punt, gave Jalen Hurts, who was the backup quarterback at the time, because Tua Tungabailoa got hurt, gave him the short field. He goes down. They ultimately win the game. And people crushed Kirby Smart for that. They also crushed his second half plan in the 2017 National Championship game. Oh, well, Tua Tungabailoa came in. They were built to defend Jalen Hurts and they, they, they totally messed up. They totally messed up their second half plan. They allowed deep ball passing. They allowed him to throw it over their head. They allowed him to get behind him. I mean, people were killing Kirby Smart, questioning him, saying, you know, this guy can't do it. He can't do it in the big game. Not a big game guy. Well, fast forward now, five years down the road, the guy's got not one, but two national championships, and his team currently has a 21-game winning streak. So just, I understand Marcus Freeman made mistakes in the game. The guy can coach. Give it time. He's just at a place where every mistake is on the biggest possible stage. And that's a tough spot to be in. You don't get you don't get the training wheels that you get sometime at some other jobs when you first get a head coaching gig. So he's going to be great. He's going to be fine. I'm not concerned about it whatsoever. Takeaway number three. As much as coaches want to say, oh, we're focused on us. We're, we're thinking about us. We're talking about us. It's all about what we do. It's not about it. Outside perception doesn't matter. Outside noise doesn't matter. That is completely untrue. <laughs> These coaches are so aware of what's being said about their program that it's almost pretty amazing, to be honest with you. It really is. And, and a lot of this is going to center around Ryan Day. Uh, let's take a listen to what Ryan Day had to say after his team fights their way back and ultimately wins the game against Notre Dame. You know, I'm really upset and disrespected by what Lou Holtz said publicly about our team and Ohio State and Buckeye Nation. And we're not going to stand for that. That's not even close to true. We had one bad half a couple years ago up in Ann Arbor. We did in the second half. But we, we, every game we play in, we're physical. We are. I don't know where that narrative comes from. All right, he of course takes shots at Lou Holtz in in that. And and Lou Holtz, here's the quote that Lou Holtz had earlier in the day. Quote, he has lost to Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, Michigan twice, and everybody beats him. Does so much because they're more physical than Ohio State. And I know Notre Dame will take the same approach. Okay, I disagree with what, Lou Holtz said in regards to Ohio State's physicality. We've talked about this in the past. I think there's a perception. I think there's a narrative about teams that, that rely so much on quarterback play, teams that rely so much on great personnel at wide receiver. There's a perception that those teams are soft. It's not accurate. If you run the ball down people's throats, everyone thinks you're tough as nails and physical as can be. Iowa is a good example. Oh, they're as tough as can be, as physical as it gets. Well, I saw the toughest team ever in Iowa get completely manhandled 
throughout the course of the game by Penn State, who, by the way, has had to deal with that label in the past as well. Now, you know, they're not soft. Look at their game against Michigan last year. Gave up a million rushing yards. That team's not good against the run. Just because you have great wideouts, just because you have elite quarterback play, doesn't mean you're soft. And I'll go take it one step further. I look at Ohio State, and I look at how they're playing on defense, and we'll talk about their defense here again in a minute. But I think Ohio State's always been extremely physical. Now, some groups are maybe more physical than others, and that's okay. Like, every year, the team's a little different. Every year, the team's built, uh, the way a team attacks or the way a team defends is going to be a little different than the year before and the year before that. And granted, yeah, things didn't go real well against Michigan last year. But if you really look at the game, first half, it's kind of like big plays given up by Ohio State. Missed tackles in the perimeter that led to the onslaught that came in the second half where they just got gashed in the second half of that football game. Ohio State's physical. They're a physical team. Are they the most physical team? Who cares? Like, Ryan Day's won a lot of football games. A lot of football games. But there are areas where they can still improve. Like, for instance, let's use this as an example. Okay? They were two of six on third and short yardage plays. You know, third and fourth or short, they were two for six. They were 0 for two on the fourth and short plays, including running a jet sweep on fourth and one or fourth and two. Like for the last couple of years, Ohio State has kind of struggled in short yardage situations. That can, by some, be an indicator of a team that maybe struggles to gain the tough yardage. I'm not saying it's fair. I'm not saying it's accurate. But some of the conclusions that people have come up with, there's stats to kind of back it up. But I think everybody's opinion, or at least they sh their opinion should now have changed based on what we saw this past weekend. They went toe-to-toe -to -toe against a blue-collar, physical football team and weathered the storm. Ohio State is always going to be a group that relies on big plays. Ohio State is always going to be a group that thrives when their offense is clicking. But they proved on Saturday that they can win a bunch of different ways. And that was important, I think, for the world to see. So if you still are of the belief that Ohio State is not physical, if you are still of the belief that Ohio State is a well-oiled machine on the perimeter, but maybe a bit of a work in progress along the line of scrimmage, both offensively and defensively. Just hold your judgment for the time being. While the offensive line has had their fair share of ups and downs, even this year, collectively, that group played their tail off for the most part in a game against a very good defense. So I have a ton of respect for Ohio State. I also have a ton of respect for Notre Dame, but I don't think we necessarily need to acknowledge the fact that, man, Everyone thinks we're soft, so I'm going to address it in the postgame. <laughs> Ryan Day doesn't have anything to prove to anybody. He's a great coach. Neither does Dan Lanning, who clearly was listening to the outside noise based on what he was saying there at halftime with Katie George saying, we're not done yet. Uh, there's a million examples of that. So I'll wrap it up with this. Coaches are very aware of what's being said about their program. And I think it's perfectly fair for them to address it. When they have the microphone, they have the stage. They want to address it and dispel some notions and throw some jabs along the way. I got no issues with it whatsoever. Takeaway number four. We all dream about being offensive coordinators, right? I, you guys play video games. I play video games. My favorite thing in the world is dialing up a sweet play on Madden. Or when the NCAA comes back, like, I'm going to be dialed up, man. I'm gonna, Oh, I'm going to get this little mesh route. I'm going to run this spider 2Y banana. I'm going to do all this other cool stuff. But sometimes, let's be real, offensive coordinators occasionally get just a little bit too cute. You know what I mean? Like, uh, maybe I'm just... And it's... Look, hindsight's twenty twenty. So when a play is, you know essentially uneffect, ineffective, then it's too cute, right? It's too cute. Like mo mentioned a moment ago, Ohio State. And we're talking about Ohio State here. 
And I know short yardage plays dating all the way back to last year have been an issue for Ohio State. I understand that. They have not done great in those short yardage plays. Hey, guess what? Most recent, you're only as good as your last play. The last play Ohio State ran was a short yardage play that was successful. So let's just go with success on this point. But man, it's fourth and one, fourth and two, whatever it was, fourth and fourth and a long one. I don't care. And they try to go with the jet sweep. Now, here's the thing. Who is Ohio State's best player pound for pound outside of Marvin Harrison? And we might all have varying opinions on this. Okay, Marvin Harrison is their best player. Maybe you think Emeka Igbuka is their second best player. I'm, I'm not going to push back on that. I'm fine with that. But if I could have anybody on Ohio State's team not named Marvin Harrison, I want Cade Stover. That's the guy I want. He's a tone setter. He's tough as nails. I, I think he's a great teammate. He's super athletic. He's crazy strong. And on the jet sweep, right? In a perfect world, dude, pound it up in there, man. You're freaking Ohio State. Mow them over. Like, get those scarlet helmet or those scarlet uh, jerseys with the with the silver helmets and gray helmets, whatever, and just mow them off the ball, right? But you got to respect the competition as well. But a jet sweep on fourth and one, I just don't get it. I will never get it. But I will also say this. What are the odds of Cade Stover, your best pound-for-pound player, outside of Marvin Harrison, what are the odds of Cade Stover getting beat by a undersized nickel linebacker, Jack Kaiser, who made a ridiculous play? A ridiculous play. When Cade Stover has you like this, and he's blocked up, locked up, man, you got exactly what you want if you're the offensive coordinator. Well, Jack Kaiser was able to get to the outside and beat Cade Stover across his face. You know how hard that is to do? It's almost impossible. But it's still kind of cute, man. Like, maybe I'm just old school. Maybe I'm just crazy. Maybe I'm just, you know, the oldest 35-year-old in the history of the world. You're Ohio State. Getting the T formation in the wing T formation with three backs in the backfield. Penn state's been using it. Everybody's been using it by the way. Notre Dame used it a couple times, by the way, with that lead that they used after they motioned out. They ran that a couple times, get in that formation and mow people over with two dudes out in front. One of them being Stover and get that tough yard. Okay. No more jet sweeps on fourth and one Tommy Reese at Alabama. You're on the goal line. You just block a punt one yard line. Your center, by the way, has had four, Bad snaps this year, maybe more. Well, air mails it over the quarterback's head. Let's take a huge loss. Now it's third and 18, second 18, whatever, from the 18-yard line. When, if you just go under center, T formation, I don't care. QB sneak, I don't care. Do the Jalen Hurts. Motion two guys right in behind the quarterback and get in a line and just push. Bush push that quarterback across the goal line. And what's the worst that can happen? Okay, can you fumble a snap under center? Of course you can. Absolutely can happen. But I'm so fed up with the shotgun plays on for one yard line. Like I am over that. Unless all you do in your offense is shotgun and your center has never snapped under center in his life, I want you under center at the goal line. Always. Always. Now, I don't care what you run. Under center at the goal line. Because guess what? The the distance that that ball has to travel from the center's right hand or left hand to his behind is about four feet, three feet. Well, it's traveling 20 when you're five yards deep in the shotgun. So I don't get it. I just will never understand that. Uh, another thing, and we'll put a bow on it with this. We've moved to an RPO world, okay? I understand that we moved to an RPO world. The Clemson Tigers are sitting there in overtime against Florida State. And a lot of these offenses are called with options for the quarterback. Run pass option. You can run it. You can pass it. Those are your options. RPOs. Okay. Well, sometimes, and we've seen other teams deal with this. I remember Bama went through this two years ago at 
Texas A&M where they're on the goal line and they gave Bryce Young an RPO and he decided to throw it. He should have just handed it. Running back would have hit his head on the goalpost. Said he tries to throw it. Incomplete. They kick a field goal. End up losing the game. Sometimes you just don't need to put the RPO on there at all. Why? Because you don't want the quarterback to have the freedom to screw it up. Cade Klubnick's a young player. He's a really young player. If Cade Klubnick was Sam Hartman or a veteran that had been around forever and understands down and distance situational football on third and one, after Will Shipley just churned out a nine yard gain on his first carry of overtime. Yes, you have a nice look to the boundary to be able to throw to your wide receiver. Maybe he makes a play. Maybe he doesn't. But he's three yards behind the line of scrimmage. And Florida State's defensive back did an amazing job of recognizing it immediately, closing and making the play, dropping the receiver for a one-yard loss. Now you go from third and one to fourth and two, and you're kind of in no man's land as an offensive coordinator. You kind of have to throw it. Not really super comfortable running it at that point. So they decide to throw it. Ball's tipped. Six-foot-five player uh, Patrick Payton gets a hand on it. Game over. Stop tagging RPOs in short yard situations. Okay? Tell your quarterback. If Cade Klubnick was a fifth-year, six-year player, he understands, you know what? Hey, it's third and one. We're going to run it twice at worst. We get stopped on the first one. We'll run it a second time. I trust my offensive line. Man, I definitely trust my running back to get that tough yard. All right? Hand it off. Like Cade Klubnick needs to understand down and distance and situational football better, for sure. But don't give him the freedom by tagging the RPO when you should just, and you just want him to hand the ball off inside. So a lot of cuteness with offensive coordinators. And look, I can't do a better job. I'm not an offensive coordinator. I don't make millions of dollars, you know, calling plays. It's not my, you know, that's not what I do, but I just think sometimes, man, we get way too cute, way too cute. Takeaway number five, there's three things more often than not. There are three things that are going to determine the outcome of the football game. It doesn't matter if the final score is 63-61. It doesn't matter if the final score is 7-3. There are three things that determine the outcome of the football game. More often than not, turnovers, explosive plays, and conversions. It's that simple. Third down, fourth down conversions, explosive plays given up, turnovers. Let's talk about Clemson. Back to that game for a minute. Clemson's rolling. They're they really at that point were the better team in the game. They were outplaying Florida State. They had the home field behind them. Cade Klubnick's in a great spot. They're moving the ball. They're on the plus side of the 50. Things are looking really good for Clemson. Maybe looking at a, at a situation where they might put this thing on ice. Well, Adam Fuller, defensive coordinator of Florida State, Understands, hey man, they, these guys are rolling. We got to do something. We we got to we got to go after them. Well, Phil Maffa, the running back, and I saw this. I was on the call. I saw Phil Maffa, and I saw Cade Klubnick's body language. People were like he's got to feel pressure. Cade Klubnick, and I'm just telling you as a quarterback, you know that with that protection, you're covered unless it's an all-out blitz. You know you're protected unless it's an all-out blitz. So Cade Klubnick sitting there. You see when quarterbacks are just completely shocked when they get hit. That's because somebody in the protection blew it. They messed up. Now, if a guy gets beat in a one-on-one situation, like quarterback's probably going to see that, feel that, do something about that. But when you have that protection called, you know that unless it's flat top, all out, full engage eight pressure, you're good. Well, they faked it inside. Phil Moffa looked at the Mike linebacker and then he refused to scan for the linebacker that was coming off the right-hand side. He gets out in his route. This guy's coming at 100 miles an hour, scot-free. Boom, sack fumble. Kalen Deloach picks it up, takes it to the house. Turnover. One turnover in the game for Clemson and it was all she wrote. Later in the game, we already talked about it. Fourth down stop for Clemson. It was all she wrote. How about the Ohio State situation. Turnovers, explosive plays were basically the entire outcome of the game. Ohio State gained 126 yards rushing in the game. 126. But 61 of those 126 came on one play. The Travion Henderson rushed to the left. He's out the gate, missed a tackle. Boom. Hit your head on the goalpost, strike up the fight song. 
One play. All it takes is one. Ohio, I mean, Ohio State couldn't do anything on the ground for the most part. Boom. One play. Complete difference maker. Fast forward a little later in the game. All right. Notre Dame blows a coverage. Blows a coverage. We kind of talked about Xavier Johnson, how he's a factor in the game. Talked about it. Go check Thursday's show. Say, hey, remember this guy. Keep an eye on this guy. He's not a freak. He's not a superstar. He's probably fourth or fifth on the list of great weapons that wide uh, at wide receiver that Ohio State has. But he's going to be a difference maker in the game. Keep an eye on him. They bust a coverage. They don't roll the safety down. He's one-on-one. Hits an easy slant. Boom, out the gate, 40-yard gain. All right? Out of there. Big play. By the way, conversely, you look at the big plays created by Notre Dame's offense, there were very few. Very few. So they couldn't really get things going. Then we talk about turnovers. Already talked about the turnover aspect of it. Very clean game between these two teams. But how about the fourth down conversion attempts? Those two teams were a combined 0 for 4 on fourth down until the final drive. 0 for 4 on fourth down until the final drive. Of course, the goal line stand, the jet sweep that we've talked about already for quite a while, the QB sneak by Hartman, the the early you know, early in the game where he's, where he's scrambling, he's a little bit short. They reviewed it and everything, thought he got it, whatnot. Short, 0 for 4 on fourth down. Well, the fourth down that really determined the game was the fourth and seven. They obviously convert. It was a great job by Ibuka, understanding the line to gain. He falls forward, they get a conversion. Still to this day, it doesn't matter how much the game has changed and, and how much things have been altered and how many things have been addressed and all these other things. The game always comes down to a few very important plays, always. And more often than not, it's going to be conversion rate, fourth and third down, turnovers, and if you give up explosive plays, they're backbreakers. That was the outcome of the game for Ohio State. That was the outcome of the game for Clemson. And as a result, Notre Dame, they didn't make those fourth down conversions, and they gave up the explosives. They come up on the losing end. Clemson has the one bad turnover in the game. They were rolling offensively. Next thing you know, it's a completely different animal. So really always comes down to those three things. doesn't matter how much the game has changed. Takeaway number six. Another thing I learned. They have long been a punching bag. For a long, long time. But guess what? They're not this year, guys. They're not. The ACC is really good. The ACC is really, really good. And how much fun is it, by the way, to have the ACC looking as strong and as deep as they are right now? And we have already, for the last several weeks, talked about how great the Pac-12 is. Like, I would marry the Pac-12 right now if I wasn't happily married. Like, that's how much I love that contingent of teams. But I'm telling you right now, guys, I love what the Big Ten's doing. I think they have three teams that I would have ranked in the top seven. I think the AP might have that as well. Love what the Big Ten's doing. The ACC is painfully, painfully underappreciated. They have six teams that are 4-0. That's tied with the SEC back in 2012 for the most teams in a Power 5 conference to start 4-0 in a single season in the poll era. So dating all the way back to 1936, Duke and North Carolina are the first are 4-0 for the first time or the fourth time ever in the same season. The other instances were who doesn't remember these? 1935, 1936, and 1971. Duke and North Carolina are legit. And now Duke, they're hosting college game day for the very first time. They deserve it, by the way. They're really good. You also think about, too, some of the other teams. Syracuse, big opportunity to prove it this week. Big opportunity. They got Clemson coming to their place. I think Syracuse is really good. And Syracuse, by the way, has played Clemson well in the past. So very, very encouraged by that. Very encouraged by that. But the ACC top to bottom, they have long been a laughing stock. You cannot laugh at the ACC right now. Miami's legit. North Carolina's legit. Duke's legit. Florida State's the real deal. I'm sure there's probably a team or two I'm leaving off here. Louisville's a problem. They're not getting the respect they probably deserve. 
I'm telling you, man, the ACC top to bottom, it's not going to get the headlines at the, at the Big 12. It's not going to get the headlines of the Big 10. It's not going to get the headlines of the SEC. But do not sleep on the ACC. I'm loving what they're doing right now. Number seven, Washington is the best state for quarterbacks in college football. Now, there's other options here too, by the way. All right, there's a lot of other options. Some good quarterback play being had right now in the state of Texas. There's some good quarterback play being had right now in the, the state of Florida. There's good quarterback play being had right now in the state of North Carolina with Riley Leonard at Duke. I mean, there's a bunch, by the way, in North Carolina that you can choose from. So there's a bunch out there for sure. But Washington is hands down right now the best state in college football if quarterback play is your thing. I think Oregon might be in the mix too, even though DJ has certainly had his, his fair share of ups and downs. We know Bo Nix is the real deal. We know California, by the way, real deal. <laughs> All right. Even though not as sold on what UCLA had at quarterback this past weekend based on the performance against Utah, but more on that here in just a minute. Michael Penix is now the favorite to win the Heisman Trophy. And rightfully so. I'm glad people are starting to take notice, man. The throws that this guy executes. Watch the game against Cal. Cal did not have terrible coverage. They did not have terrible coverage at all. He's throwing guys open. He, I mean, guys are adjusting on the fly. I mean, the throw that he made to the left corner of the end zone, I believe Rome Adunze was the guy that was on the receiving end. The way Rome Adunze adjusted his body and caught that pass is just ridiculous, guys. The windows that he's attacking are insane. Insane. He's the second FBS player in the last 25 years with 300 passing yards, 300 passing touchdowns, 70% completion in each of the team's first four games. The other guy that did that was Bailey Zappi back in 2021. And Bailey Zappi, of course, playing for Western Kentucky. So he's the only Power 5 player to do it. And they've beaten now two Power 5 teams, Michigan State. And obviously, they've beaten what I think is, is a better Cal team than what people would probably realize. This guy is unconscious right now. He is unconscious. And his receiving core, ha, huh, they're ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. But don't sleep on Cam Ward. Do not sleep on Cam Ward. They brought in a new offensive coordinator. They want to stretch the field. They want to be more Tennessee. They want to, they want to get a little more aggressive down the field. They've done that this year. And my goodness, has he responded beautifully. How about the first half performance against Oregon State? All right. How do you like 19 of 20? Okay. That's the highest completion rate in the first half against an AP-ranked opponent in the last 20 years with a minimum of 15 attempts. His performance in the first half this past weekend was off the charts ridiculous good. He's thrown for nearly 1,400 yards. He's got zero interceptions. He's the fourth most by a player without throwing an interception through his first four games in the last 20 years. And here's what his head coach had to say after the game. Quote, I think Cam deserves to be mentioned with the best quarterbacks in the country, period. I think he continues to show that. And I think nationally, we undervalue him for what he's doing. Coach Dickert, I could not agree more. If you're not watching Washington State right now, you are doing yourself a disservice. This kid transferred up from Incarnate Word last year had some really good moments and some moments that were forgettable. Obviously, a huge learning curve jumping up to the Power Five. But this year, he's unconscious and will continue to, I think, play at a ridiculously high level. So Washington, the great state of Washington, the Apple Cup, ladies and gentlemen, there's going to be some fireworks at season's end. Takeaway number eight. Is this actually the year that defense wins championships again? I know it's like a crazy thought. But remember, we used to always say defense wins championships. Offense sells tickets. So we always said that, right? And as an offensive guy, I always resented that notion. Like we're kind of important, right? Kind of. I mean, maybe not that important, but like we're pretty important. Maybe on the teams I played for, weren't that important. Like, hey, just don't screw it up. All right. But I'm telling you, y'all, defense is coming back. It's coming back in a big way. Here's some of the teams that are at the top of the total defense marks. Penn State, number one in the Power 5 in total defense. How about the performance? Iowa had a stretch in this game where they went three and out six out of seven drives. All right? They held... And I, look, I understand that, that Iowa has a lot of struggles offensively. I know they were a little shorthanded. 
But anytime you hold a quarterback to 5 of 14 for 42, and 36 of those yards came in the first quarter alone with two completions of 20 and 12 yards, I would say you're in pretty good spot. Uh, Iowa finished the game 17 carries for 20 yards. Now, when you take into account sacks, obviously that factors in, but three yards per carry if you take out the sacks. I mean, they have been playing ridiculous. Forced four fumbles in the game, just constantly harassed Cade McNamara. Had five interceptions two weeks ago against Illinois. Five turnovers, excuse me, four interceptions two weeks ago against Illinois. Defense for Penn State is playing as well as anybody in college football, and the numbers reflect that. How about Michigan, number two in the Power Five in total defense? I know we, you know, we haven't necessarily seen them play against top tier competition. That day will come, but th- they just held Rutgers to 122 yards. Uh, I mean, how about uh, just 32 yards in the run game? They outgained them running the football 180 to 32. All right, uh, just unbelievable. And then the final three quarters of the game, they outpossessed Rutgers 31 to 13, 31 to 14 or so. So like 3104 to 1356, what have you. And that is complete and utter domination defensively. How about Ohio State? We've talked about them, what they've done on defense this year. It's been incredible. They're fourth right now in the power five in total defense. Notre Dame, they're fifth in the power five in total defense. You hold that team, Notre Dame, you keep Marvin Harrison in check. Maybe he was a little banged up, what have you, but you helped him in check for the most part. Like Egbuka had a big day. But Notre Dame's playing ridiculous on defense. They're fifth in the power five until defense. Utah, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? They're seventh right now in the power five in total defense. And uh, I mean, you look at Junior Tafuna, all right? Keanu Tanavasa, uh, uh, Tanuvasa has been a complete difference maker. These two defensive tackles, man, I mean, they were just destroying destroying UCLA's offensive line. You look at the edges, Jonah Ellis and Logan Fano, like these guys are just, they combined for 16 tackles and four and a half sacks, generated consistent pressure on Dante Moore. We talked about it last week. We said, man, I'm going to tell you this, Dante Moore does not handle pressure well. He's a young quarterback, and my goodness, did he struggle. I mean, he struggled. And that defensive line, man, gold star for the Utah defensive line, they're relentless, absolutely relentless, and have played so incredibly 4-0 4-0 right now with their out there starting quarterback and their best offensive weapon. It's absurd. And to win a game in dominant fashion the way they did is ridiculous. Oregon, ninth in the Power Five in total defense. We already kind of talked about them. But, I mean, Jordan Burst, Casey, Casey Rogers, I mean, just bull rushing their way into the backfield. They look at the back end. Kyrie Jackson really held Xavier Weaver in check. He blanked it pretty much everyone he played. Uh, I mean, Alabama's finding themselves defensively. They've allowed 13 points the last two games. Miami's had some dominant moments defensively. Florida's been amazing on that side of the wet ball as well. They're number three in total defense in the Power Five. Defense might actually win championships this year, ladies and gentlemen, because you think about the playoff contenders right now in the world. They're all playing really good defense. They're all playing really good defense. I didn't even list Georgia, and we know they're going to play good defense. That's for sure. Takeaway number nine. The SEC West is a three-horse race, and all those teams have some flaws. Let's think about LSU. When Jane Daniels is on, they're a very difficult team to beat. I mean, he had a he had a rough first half against Arkansas. No one's doubting that. Uh, he just wasn't on his game, okay? But when he's going, man, I mean, they're going to be a little bit up and down from time to time. They were last year. They're probably going to be again this year. Well, like Neighbors unbelievable. Brian Thomas is continuing to emerge as a legit number two. And then you think about the front seven defensively. I mean, this is a group that was dominating against Mississippi State. Well, what the heck happened? I mean, the Hogs scored on their final five possessions, which is something that's really concerning. We know the secondary is not great, but the front seven, that's got to be the calling card of LSU with the talent that they have in the front seven. It hasn't been the case, man. Just very inconsistent. Alabama's another team that, hey, a ton of mistakes. Milrow had a bad interception, but I thought he really did a nice job in the second half of that football game. There were some bad sacks taken. Okay, like, you know, on the third and five, you lose nine yards to, you know, from the 21 yard line. Now the field goal is a 48 yarder, which Will Riker made. But I mean, that's not a guarantee. Seth McLaughlin snapping it over his head. They've had a handful of poor snaps. He had four low snaps against Texas. Against Ole Miss, he sent the one a little low, sent one over the top. And then he also had a bad snap against Middle Tennessee that Milrow bailed out and turned into a 20 yard touchdown. But still, and that's been a little bit problem. So uh, they just have a lot to clean up. There's still some penalties. They've been better in that regard, but still something they got to address. I mean, Milrose got, I think, do a little bit better job in coverage. I think he sometimes still predetermines, but I thought he looked much more comfortable in the second half. The offensive line is still very much a question mark. Four sacks given up on Saturday. That brings the season total to 16. 
Uh, not all of them, by the way, were on the offensive line, I might add. Uh, but I think the biggest concern is that, man, this is still a run imposing group, right? Like they're going to pound the ball. They're going to do that well. They had 131 yards on 45 carries. That's 2.9 per carry. And when you adjust for sacks, they had just 160 yards for 3.9 yards a carry. That's not what you want. Okay. And then one more thing on gains on runs that went for zero yards or yards for a loss that happened seven times in their rushing attempts. Yeah. And the sacks, that's 11 of Alabama's 64 plays. So 17% of their plays went for zero or negative yards. That's not what you want. So they got to be more efficient. But here's the thing about Alabama. The defense is really rounding into form, man. They are really starting to get it going on that side of the ball. I think you recognize, hey, five defensive linemen had a huge impact in the game on this past weekend. Deontay Lawson goes down in the second quarter, and you see the depth of Trez Marshall, Jahad Campbell, uh, Kendrick Blackshear to kind of fill in. So they, they clearly have some depth at that position. And then the back end, after what was an unrecognizable performance a couple weeks ago against Texas, they're starting to find themselves. I mean, Kool-Aid McKinstry the last two weeks have been off the charts. Terry and Arnold, I think he led the team, by the way, with eight tackles, broke up a couple passes, had the interception. That group in the back end, I think as we continue to move forward, has a chance to be a legit unit, an elite unit there in the secondary. So that's going to be a huge factor. And then A&M, who I think is very much in the mix in the SEC West. Okay, Connor Wigman going down in the ankle injury. I have not seen an update as of right now. That's something to be concerned about. What we talked last week, the most important position right now in college football that you could seriously make a legit argument about might be the backup quarterback, the most unheralded position. But Max Johnson goes in, doesn't miss a beat. I mean, he had his first five attempts for 115 yards and really broke the game open in a lot of ways. Well, granted, they're going against really rough quarterback play on the other side. Both Peyton Thorne, Robbie Ashford missing a lot of open guys. It was not good. But you think about where Aggies have been the last couple of weeks on third down. Man, they are ridiculous on third down. They allowed Auburn just three of 15 on third down. If you look back the last two weeks, they've allowed four of 37 on third down. I mean, that is ridiculous. 11% overall on third down conversions. I mean, they've successfully converted... Everyone they've played, even in the even in the Miami game, they're giving up just 20% on third down, 10 of 49 overall. So they're playing really good situational football, and they can really get after the quarterback. They had seven sacks in the game this past weekend, and that was the most obviously generated by an Aggie team since 2017. So there's three teams right now in the SEC West that I think are good. They all, I think, have some flaws, but I also think it's going to be really interesting to see how much better these teams get as the season progresses. And then the final takeaway. The Mountain West is better than the American, ladies and gentlemen. Like, I know forever the American has been considered the top G5 conference, and it's been hard to push back to. They've long had their champion representing the G5 in the New Year's Six, whether it's UCF, Cincy, Houston, Tulane. But this year... There's been two teams that have impressed me from the American so far. One is Memphis. The other is Tulane. SMU has failed to look good against either of their Power 5 opponents. They played OU and TCU. Obviously, two solid teams, but they didn't look great. Only two teams right now in the American are above 500. Seven of their teams are one and two or worse. And collectively, they have a 42% winning percentage in the American right now. They are one in 20 against the power five, one in 20 against the power five. That one win was, of course, Rice's win against Houston a couple weeks ago. Meanwhile, here's the Mountain West. The Mountain West are four and 17 against the power five. It's not great. Okay. It's not great, but it's a whole heck of a lot better than one and 20. They also have two wins by Fresno State. They're appropriately ranked in the top 25 against P5 competition. Overall, they have a 500 record. Uh, that's the collectively as, as, a, as a conference, which I think is really good. Um, they have five teams that are below 500, which is not ideal, but one of those teams is Colorado State, who gave Colorado a couple weeks ago all they wanted. Air Force is 4-0. Fresno State is 4-0. Uh, they obviously beat Purdue and have, have looked pretty dang good. Wyoming's 3-1 with a win against Texas Tech, and they had Texas tied going into the fourth quarter. 
UNLV beaten SEC team. So the Mountain West right now, albeit it's not going to necessarily generate the buzz that it has in the past, but the Mountain West is superior through four weeks to the American and have performed a lot better in some of the big matchups on their card. That'll do it for us here at Always College Football. Make sure you follow the show on social media at Always CFB. Submit your questions because on Wednesdays, we always do our mailbag and we get those questions not from the email traditionally. We used to do the email. We still do the email. So you can continue sending your questions to alwayscollegefootball at gmail.com. But if you can submit questions on our social media by following Always CFB, or you can follow me at Greg McElroy, we will answer your questions on a Wednesday edition of Always College Football. That'll do it for us. We love you guys. We appreciate you guys. Continue to like, rate, and subscribe for all of us here at Always College Football. For Mark, Jake, Jack, I'm Greg. With also special thanks to our contributor. We have a very special guest with us the last couple days. We wouldn't be able to put the show on without this young man. So Cohen, you're the wind beneath our wings, my friend. We appreciate you. Big Baylor fan, by the way. Reeling a little bit after the performance this weekend. But we love you, Cohen. Thanks for being with us. And that'll do it here on a Monday edition of Always College Football. Check back with us on Wednesday for another great show. And remember, it's Always College Football. Hey guys, it's Greg McElroy. Thanks for watching Always College Football. Make sure you like, rate, and subscribe to ESPN's YouTube channel and wherever you listen to your podcasts.